Constantinople has fallen, and all across Europe, ancient vampires known as Methuselah rise to claim vast territories as their own. This is the War of Princes, where the political maneuvering of old stand side by side with the armies of ghouls and canines clashing in the night. But vampires are not the only ones making this land their own. In the wild places, the Guru have their cairns. Mages have ancient sites of power for magic. The Shadow Inquisition has risen to eradicate the enemies of God. And the enigmatic Fae have their own plans. Welcome to the Dark Ages. Greetings, dear listeners, and welcome to episode 5 of season 2 of the World of Dark Ages podcast, where we go through the Dark Ages line of books and talk about each of them, both in terms of history and as gaming books. My name is Jacob. And I'm Peter. Well, that's that's not all we do. We usually find things to complain about, usually silly armors <laughs> and stuff, but yeah. Yeah, it's, either either armor, weapons, hats, or something along those lines. Or, um, or all of the above. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so let's uh, let's uh, see what we can figure out with this one. But first, Peter, what's up with you? Uh, well, lots of strange things. Uh, some of the, our listeners might know that I'm a member of the Swedish Home Guard, and due to recent events, uh, we've we've had some things to do. Unfortunately, I can't speak about it. But uh, yeah, we we live in interesting times, to to quote a, a Chinese saying. Uh, but. <laughs> But except for that, it's yes, yeah, it's, it's been pretty slow. The the we've we've actually had some aurora borealises here in. Oh, nice. Uh, yeah, I haven't been able to see them properly since uh, it's either been too much light pollution, or it's been uh, it's been overcast. So so the most that I've been able to see is like a faint green shimmer. Uh, so I hope it's an aurora borealis and and not just me getting cataracts. Uh, <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Over here, uh, my wife got corona. Um, so, Too bad. Um, Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, she's she's all other things being equal, she's doing okay. And so far, all my tests have come back negative. So that's yeah. nice. And we'll, um, we'll sacrifice a goat to Epicurus. Something along those lines. Uh, and also, we're recording this on a Sunday, specifically the Sunday where it is the Super Bowl. So I'm going to be staying up extremely Ooh, late you're tonight. Doing the, yeah, the, the superb owl thingy that, that exactly. You like. yeah. And and tomorrow at work, I'm just going to try and you know see if I can <laughs> relax a little bit. But it's it's the holiday, so we're not going to have that many kids. So yeah. hopefully, I'm I'm not going to be called upon to do anything that requires me to think because yeah. that will be bad well may, may the superbest owl win the the egg or whatever uh yeah we don't have any owls we have uh rams and um tigers so we'll see which one of those wins anyway uh the book we're looking at today is possibly spoilers here one of my favorite books for the line dark ages europe written by bjorn c Bue, chris hartford oliver hofmann james malichewski Ari Marmel, Lisa J. Steele, and C.A. Suleiman, developed by Matthew McFarland. As always, we first look at the cover, and I absolutely love it. The sword that the guy on the cover is holding is pure 100% fantasy. His armor and the halberd next to him are completely anachronistic, but I still love it. It's beautiful, dynamic, and evocative. But as the sailor among us, uh, what do you think of the ships? Yeah, <laughs> well, the ones in the background... I can't see enough of to to really complain about, but um, the fact that that the guy uh, who's standing by by the steering oar uh, on the on the ship that's kind of the main focus, uh, 
either the the or uh, the steering or is just attached or the and, and the rudder is is just affixed to the boat which means that you can't actually steer the thing uh, or or it works in some kind of mysterious way that I can really can't figure out um, <laughs> or also the fact that he's standing so high up like you you can see basically all of him except for uh, for his feet, which means that there, there are no railings and, and there is no no sides to the ship that prevents you from falling off. And you kind of want that because, especially if you're wearing armor, because swimming in armor, even if you could swim, is kind of annoying. And even if you're a vampire, getting back on board is going to be uh, also quite difficult. So... If you look at how boats are actually built, you know quite quickly notice that that there is something in the way, kind of you know, waist height or higher, preventing you from falling off board yeah. uh, or overboard. So, so yeah, that's um, it, yeah, it, it just looks weird. Also, the sail doesn't seem to be attached to anything. Uh, also, it couldn't really be attached to anything because the boat kind of kind of ends where it is. Um, yeah, so so the the end of the sail, there's nothing to tie it off to. Yeah, exactly. It, it there should be some kind of line going, but if if you follow that that line where where the corner of the sail would go, that that's just off on the side of the ship. And and another just just me nitpicking um, the burning city in in kind of the background. It looks very modern. Um, the, it does. It does. Yes. Yeah. The, the tower up on the hill uh, or or the the cliff it looks fine. It's it's perfectly. It's a, it's a round tower which I think started to come into fashion around this time. But yeah, it it looks more like they kind of I don't know they they raided and burnt a, a modern Norwegian vacation village rather than something from the 13th century. Uh, yeah, and and the the ships in the background. Uh, if you look at how full their sails are, they're going yeah. to be running aground in about 30 seconds. Yeah, something like that. You you probably don't want to have your sails unfurled and and uh, expanded to that extent if you're so close to shore. Uh, and at and least obviously, one, one weird thing is, if you look at how his cloak is billowing, and then you look at how full the sails are, how's the wind blowing? Yeah. Because, <laughs> but... <laughs> But other than that, I mean, like I said, there's a lot to nitpick, but I really like it. And I think one of the reasons I like it is because it has sort of a Frank Frechetta vibe to it. Yeah, almost. Now, now that you mention it, it, it kind of does have something like that. It's Yeah, it's it's cool. Uh, like, the general image is, is quite cool. I, I do like the fact that the, the guy with your, that you mentioned with the fantasy scimitar or saber, uh, he's kind of... of uh, uh, the, the at least the skirt part of of his uh, coat that you see hanging out beneath his armor uh, actually has some nice embroiderings on it. So uh, so it's it's not the the usual boring kind of browns and and grays. Uh, he also has a nice red cloak, which is again colors are are always nice when it comes to medieval fashion. So so yeah, it's it's a cool uh, picture, but it's some things are just completely wrong. Yeah, but uh, speaking of the cloak, one thing I like about it is you can actually, it, it works as a cloak far too often when you see both pictures and in fantasy series, people have the cloak sort of hanging off their back 
And the reason yeah. you're wearing a cloak is because you want to be warm. So you want the cloak to, at the barest minimum, cover your shoulders. But as much as of the front of you as well would be really nice. And this cloak does that rather than just being a strange fashion accessory that'll get in the way. Yeah, and, and he also has the buckle on his right shoulder, uh, which was kind of a thing that was seen quite often because that means that your right hand... Uh, which is the one that you usually uh, hold your sword in is kept free. Uh, now he's he's using that hand to to try to steer the boat, but he he's not going to be able to do it because there's no way that that the rudder can pivot. Uh, but but yeah, it's it's a nice little detail. Uh, and as you mentioned, it it actually looks like a cloak that would be uh, of some use to protect against the elements. Yeah, and the final thing I want to say here is one thing I noticed is uh, the book is called Dark Ages Europe, and that's been trademarked. But the trademark uh, is, it's very small, and it's right next to Europe on the cover, so it looks like they've trademarked Europe. <laughs> yeah. um, anyway, uh, as for the inside art, I think it's generally quite good with a number of really cool pieces. Uh, I'm sure people are getting sick of me pointing out historical mistakes in weapons and armor, so I'll say that we have some decent examples of correct arms and armor in the pictures. Uh, the shields, helmets, mail, and uh, weapons on page 12 are fully appropriate for early medieval Britain. Uh, we have the character... Uh, I'm not 100% sure how to pronounce this. Either Eudes or Eudes de Troy on page 54. He's wearing what seems like a light padded tunic and that's perfect for someone who wants to wear just a little protection in a civilian setting mm. on page 78 we have some knights that look more or less perfect with their mail and shields and one of them even have a mail flap that is designed to be uh, put up and cover the face when needed and that's yeah. extremely rare to see in pictures and finally the sword wielded by the rider on page 119 look very period correct though i must point out his horse armor uh, does not uh, so credit where credit is due, due, there's plenty of anachronistic arms and armor depicted, but there are also several pictures that get it right. Uh, also, I think the character portraits are really good, and most of them don't look like your standard 80s club, uh, goth club goer. Yeah, I, I agree. I would also like to point out the the picture on uh, on page 56, uh, the where where you have uh, I'm assuming that it's supposed to be some kind of clerical person, a a knight or a soldier, and uh, a civilian kind of arguing over something, um, and they in in the style they remind me mostly of of um, uh, what's his name uh, is it Josh Kirby one of the uh, the the guy who who illustrated um, Terry Pratchett's Discworld's book that is important. Yeah, kid, yeah, I think yes, it's... yes, that is very much the style. Now that you mention it, yes, I can't remember his name, but yeah, uh, I think it's Josh Kirby, uh, but yeah. he's the one who's not Paul Kidby. Uh, but it's quite a, of a comical style. But but if you look at paintings from this time period or or the medieval time in general, you can often see quite quite comical. Uh, illustrations and and especially when it comes to kind of almost these these caricatures of of knights and and clerics and and basically anyone uh, and and you also get this like really weird like you have um, manuscripts where where in the margins you have uh, quite nicely done actually you you have um, hares or or rabbits riding around on snails yeah. doing all sorts of things. And 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 that's just a weird thing, and I I love the kind of weird look that this 
uh, that this picture has as well because it kind of evokes that kind of uh, satire and, and caricature of of, um, of the higher ups basically that that you can sometimes see so uh, and and also I can kind of imagine that this could be a coterie of players and you have like <laughs> the two that are always uh, always arguing with each other and then you just have the one uh, guy in the background like please can we just do the mission come on uh, <laughs> You're absolutely right. Yeah. So, but but yeah, I except from that, I I kind of agree with uh, with your assessment of the pictures. Uh, there are some where you have some really fantasy esque um, dresses, and and there's one where uh, there is a female character who, um, unless she's wearing body paint, uh, she has a very good seamstress because her dress is incredibly. Uh, tight-fitted to her body uh, but but yeah it's it's kind of we, we get the same kind of stuff you have some nice um, uh, Italian outfits that are uh, perhaps a bit too early but kind of you, you still kind of get like the, the uh, mercantile vibe of uh, of merchants from not only from Venice but from all over Italy uh, mm. so yeah all in all I, I actually quite like it it's there's nothing too bad so the intro is only three pages, but it does give us a nice introduction to the concept of the book, which is to give a general overview of the lands of 1230 Europe, along with some of the customs, politics and canines. I think that this does a very good job of letting people know what to expect and what not to expect, especially given the broad scope of the book. They also tell us that the destiny section has been cut from NPCs to give the storyteller more freedom to choose the fates of important characters. I'm... I'm actually kind of sad to see it go. I feel that storytellers could always make their own decisions, but if they didn't, and then if a character's fate, you know, didn't impact the game, it was always fun to know what would happen to them, and it was use it was useful if players were suddenly to investigate the fate of a certain NPC that you hadn't really thought about. Um, but do you have any any thoughts about the intro here? Yeah, well, I I do agree about uh, them removing the uh, the destiny part. Uh, I can see why they did it for uh, for this particular book because it's it's a very big book, mm. uh, and and there's a lot of text in it, anyways. But but yeah, I agree, uh, especially uh, because I think that at least a few of the the characters in this book shows up in in other places. Um, or or might just be mistaken, but in the case where where that is um, that is so, uh, even if you kind of recognize like oh, but this character is the one from this other book, having just a small uh, section, a few sentences describing what happens to them uh, in in another book, perhaps even in in the modern setting, um, instead of you just having to go through all of your other books to find out like yeah what did happen to Anatole or what did happen to this guy and and oh okay yeah I see that he he gets killed in a um, in the Anarch re- uh, rebellion or whatever then then at least you have that and and you can work from it and if you want to look in the other book where they are more prominent then you can just do that Okay, so uh, chapter one is the British Isles, and like all chapters, we get a fairly simple map with some cities, and we also get two sidebars listing important mortals and important canines. I like all three in general. Uh, I'm in favor of the maps being pretty, you know, basic in general, rather than trying to cram in a lot of detail. I don't know if you agree uh, with that. Yeah, yes and no. I 
some of the maps, uh, like the one of the British Isles and uh, and and also Iberia and uh, the kind of area around Greece, works okay because uh, the British Isles, you you know, they're they're the British Isles. They're isolated, and and you get a whole of it. But some of the other are like they're basically just shapes uh, be- because you don't get the surrounding area. So, for example, when you have I think it's down in Germany and and kind of Eastern Europe, you you just basically get a few vague shapes of of countries. Oh, that is true. Yes. Yeah, and and so you don't get you you don't get to know where those places are in relation to other places. So if they just could have spent like half a page in the end, adding all of these uh, regional maps together to to a complete ma- map of Europe. So you could just see that, oh, okay, so so that city is actually closer to that one. I thought it was over there. It, it would have been a lot better. But but yeah, they, they kind of simplified, um, like, for example, the one of, of England where you have, um, what is it, like half a dozen of fives and the city of London marked on a map. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. perfectly suitable. No complaints. Mm. So one thing I was worried about going into this chapter was how much space Mithras would take up. I feel like every time we get a book set in the British Isles, Mithras takes center stage. Uh, but I think it was handled pretty well here. The same incidentally goes for King Arthur, whose legend is given a bit of attention, but it doesn't become a major plot point, and it, that could have become like a plot tumor in my opinion. So I like how these two things are handled. One thing that I was less happy about was the Lianan Gangrel feud. I can't remember if this has been mentioned before, but even if it has, it just seems to me that it pigeonholes Clan Gangrel, who already has a couple of other feuds going, like for example with Clan Ravnos. Um, so I don't know if, if, if you thought about these plot points uh, in, in any way. Yeah, well, I, I'm i a bit disappointed that it didn't use the, the alternative version of, of the King Arthur legend, where he, he and his entire army gets arrested by by the British constabulary <laughs> for for uh, having uh, murdered uh, a famous historian, as we've all seen in the documentary uh, Monty Python's Search for the Holy Grail. Uh, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I agree. There's there's actually quite a bit of Mithras in this, but it it's not too much. Uh, and I I also like that, like you said, that yeah, they they mention King Arthur, uh, but like it's I don't think anyone really wants a vampiric King Arthur running around so they kind of dealt with that and moved on uh, as for the Leanon thing yeah I, I see what you mean because it it's kind of like or if I get your point uh, correctly it's it's kind of like that's that's the whole thing that the grand gangrel do in these aisles so like I don't know can't can't they do something else? So, so yeah, I, I, I agree that they're kind of pigeonholed. Um, so we get a short overview of the history of England, Wales, Scotland and Ireland, as well as the continental Angevin lands. And I think they do a good job with limited space. One could maybe say the section on Wales, Scotland and Ireland are extremely short, but this is a vampire supplement. And they mention that there are very few vampires in these lands. So I, I think it's fair that they don't spend as much time on those. Uh, there is a similarly uh, short overview of the geography of these lands, uh, and both the history and geography has mortal and vampiric information interspersed in a really well done way. Mm. Two things I really like is the explanation of English lands uh, across the channel, showing that what we think of as common borders is quite different in the Middle Ages, uh, and that's something that we'll revisit when we get to Scandinavia. Yeah. And then 
the section on common law. Common law is a very English thing. Most continental lands used uh, Roman law, slightly changed and adapted through the the years, but still, you know, based in Roman law. Uh, and ev- and that is even the lands that hadn't been under Roman rule. They were beginning to adopt Roman law, sometimes mixing it with older laws. Uh, but I, I feel that you might be more qualified to talk about, about law than yeah, me. Yeah, well, not not when it comes to common law, because common law is is a marshland that you don't want to get bogged down into. Uh, yeah, if, if anybody wonders why American uh, the American legal system seems so weird and complex, it's because it's based on common law. Yeah. And, I mean, common law back then made... I would say as much sense as Roman well, law did. In in some yeah. ways, it's yeah, it's it's a whole thing. Yeah, and and it's the the problem with common law is is that it basically never stops. It just you you just yeah add things onto it. And this is kind of a simplified way, but I I just remember from uh, back when we were uh, or when I was was studying law. And and when we had to read about other legal traditions and, and we got to, to common law and everyone was like, why are they still doing this? This makes no <laughs> sense at all. Uh, so, so basically what you do instead of like, we're going to remove this law and add this law instead, or this law kind of makes this law uh, not work anymore. Uh, it doesn't really work that way in, in common law. You just add things to it. So, so basically if you can find like, well... We had this law three hundred years ago, and and uh, since it this particular law hasn't been uh, abolished, then we can still kind of use it as a precedence, and and we have this ruling from even further back, and it's yeah, it's it's very bureaucratic, or not bureaucratic, but it's it's very it's very heavy and uh, and and kind of complicated and interesting in a way, but. I'm glad that I don't have to practice it. Uh. Yeah, I'll say the perfect example is um, in in America, they passed a constitutional amendment outlawing alcohol. That constitutional amendment hasn't been removed, Mm. but what they did was they made a new constitutional amendment that said alcohol is now legal. So basically, they didn't go in and remove a law that they wanted uh, to not apply yeah. anymore. What they did was they made they went in and made a new law that cancelled the old yeah. law, and that is 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 what common law yeah, is about. Yeah, exactly. But but yeah, I I do like the fact that they included and they uh, they kind of um, uh, kind of try to explain it and and that they make um, uh, they they give you the difference between common law and canon law, uh, having both. Uh, um, uh, a, a, a non-religious law, a secular law, and a canon law was was common all through Europe, uh, and or at least that that um, the clergy had uh, jurisdiction over their own. So, uh, but but yeah, it's it gets even more interesting in uh, when it comes to English law. Uh, and now we have a podcast dog saying hello. Hello, podcast dog. Hello there, podcast dog. I don't know if uh, podcast dog has any particular uh, insights into common law, um, but uh, podcast dog is a good boy. Yeah, well, girl, but yes. Oh, good yeah. girl. Sorry. No worries. <laughs> um, so my closing comments on this chapter is that I liked it, but I wish we'd gotten even more about the people and the customs of the land, though that's that's basically something that I could say about every chapter. Um, 
I understand the space is limited and it can't have been easy to uh, pare down the information, especially since England is actually most of, one of the most well-documented medieval nations. A lot was written down and a lot has survived. So we know quite a lot about England compared to a lot of other places. Yeah, we do. And and one of those reasons is because they had such a, um, uh, not complicated, but, but such, an, uh, such an extensive legal system because you write things down when, when there's a legal disagreement. Uh, yeah, I, I agree that it's um, it's very well written. Uh, most there there are some small things that uh, that kind of a, a few things that I think is just interesting, and and some things that I think they just missed when proofreading. Like for example, they when when they talk about uh, the different clans and who they embrace. They mentioned that that uh, the Brugia uh, are are amongst the clans that uh, doesn't necessarily uh, embrace from the higher classes, uh, and and then they mentioned that the high clans also don't embrace from the higher cl- uh, classes, and Brugia the Brugia are a a high clan, so I don't know if they just yeah. got themselves confused. Uh, there there's also a. Uh, a Cappadocian called Roger de Camden, uh, usually just called Lord Camden, and I'm I'm thinking is is this like a goth joke because Camden is is the part of London <laughs> where where all the subcultures, including the goths, hang around, uh, and the Cappadocians are uh, they 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 look rather gothy in a way. So I don't know if that's just a uh, <laughs> I never really thought about that, but you're absolutely yeah. right. That could just be a a, a goth joke. Um, incidentally, if if people uh, who've never been to London, if you ever go there, there Camden Market is yeah, amazing. it's a really cool place. Uh, and I I also like that they uh, the the history that that they mention is like I I haven't really found any major things that are wrong. There's there's one when they complain about. Uh, oh, what's her? Uh, that that the uh, basically they say that the uh, the English barons doesn't like the uh, the proposed queen uh, because uh, well well they say that they don't like her but in in reality it was probably because she was married to uh, uh, the ruler of of Anjou so you kind of got the the. The rivalry between the the English barons and and the French equivalents, uh, and so I think mm. they could have just mentioned that. Uh, I I also like that they mentioned uh, the disaster of the white ship, which was uh, basically the uh, the successor uh, to to the king uh, and and a bunch of other important people. They were going from from France to England, uh, and they all went on the same ship. And they all got drunk, and then they kind of of challenged the captain to race the other ship with the king aboard, and oh. and they hit a rock, and uh, basically everyone died. Uh, so so it's one of those like kind of don't drink and ship guys because yeah exactly. kind of like what we mentioned before that if you f- f- fall off the ship then it's going to be really difficult to get back on, especially if your ship is sinking. Uh, but but yeah, it's like they, they accepted. Um, story is that they got really, really drunk and just messed things up. Uh, so that that was that, that's what happens when you get a bunch of of um, um, of, of nobles trying to uh, interfere with 
with hardworking sailors and their jobs. So. Yeah. Um, so chapter two is France, and this chapter is structured somewhat different from the British Isles, with a lot less uh, history and more focus on current affairs and even future affairs. The Albigensian Crusade takes up quite a lot of space, which makes sense since it's really defi- a really defining event both for mortal and canine France, it's what really cements the French king's power, and it even has ramifications outside of France, since it's really what helps kickstart the Papal Inquisition, Mm. which is the Inquisition that most people uh, know of, rather than uh, other than the the Spanish Inquisition, which is a whole other yeah. No one ever expects that. It's it's always (laughs) we have to say that. Exactly. Um, other than that, we get a nice geography chapter, though I must point out two things. The first is uh, in the Champagne section, where it says that caravans are protected by crossbow archers and pikemen. Pikes aren't invented yet. Uh, caravan guards are probably going to have spears and then salt axes and maces as sidearms. Pikes are, are a later thing. Um, the second is in the Brittany section, where it mentioned the legendary city of East. Uh, this legend uh, can't really be traced back further than the 15th mm. century, though I can understand them inclu- including such a cool story because it, it really is very cool. So, so you can have it earlier, but I just wanted to mention that in our world, it didn't appear un- until like the 15th century. Um, other than that, we have a few sections focusing on the more unusual aspects of life in France, all the cathedrals being built, yeah. the universities, and the Champagne fairs. And this is cool since the more unusual uh, but important aspects of the country is probably what a lot of vampires would be drawn to. The university section also illustrates an interesting point of medieval life since the students are technically clergy, they are subject to canon yeah. law, not secular law, as you mentioned earlier. And the University of Paris is on strike in 1230 because people want to punish the student under secular law for going to a Parisian convent and raping the nuns. Um, interesting. Anyway, I could have done with some uh, stuff about Charlemagne, given the importance of France. But other than that, you know, I, I like this chapter. Yeah, there, there I... I... Also, kind of like it. It's it has some really cool things. Uh, there's a lot about the Cathars and the Albigensian Crusades, which uh, are are kind of a huge thing. And it's uh, it's one of those things that you don't necessarily know about unless you're you're a bit of a history geek. Um, and okay. and yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and I I also um, like how we kind of. Managed to to uh, interweave Knight uh, society and and Knight um, events with with mortal events, and and they have, for example, they they mention kind of like if if you want to, uh, if you want to mess with with one of your um, political opponents, then one thing that you could do is kind of like sabotage their cathedral that they're building because if if you mess something up and they have to repair it it's going to take decades uh and and so they're going to be busy doing that time and and i like it because it's it's kind of like yeah because it it makes sense because vampire especially the older ones that could actually afford uh financing building an entire cathedral they're they're going to be the ones that they don't think in in weeks or months or even years ahead, they're the ones who can who's going to plan in in decades and perhaps even centuries because 
that's that's how long they've lived and that's quite often also how long it takes to build cathedrals so so keeping your opponent busy for for a couple of decades while he repairs his his really cool awesome cathedral is is a really cool idea and and it also ties in with the fashion of actually building cathedrals in this area um i i also like the uh they they mentioned um and forgive my uh pronunciation but alice camps uh or, or alice camp perhaps if it's supposed to be some kind of french which is the uh, necropolis outside of of arles in in southern france ah yeah uh where they 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 uh and and it's it's a necropolis so it's it's basically this above ground um cemetery where you just stack uh, sarcophagi and and coffins and build them into uh, what you call them uh, the the kind of I, I forgot the word where, where do you, um, where, where do you put dead people where when you don't put them in 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 graves uh, tombs is the word tombs. yes ah uh, so go. so uh, not only is this a really cool place because it it went back for uh, for at, I think it's it's at least for the fourth century um, AD. Uh, and so uh, in in the uh, in this book in in Dark Ages Europe they describe how people from from the clo- nearby city would uh, throw coffins into the river and they would have nailed a coin into it to uh, to pay the uh, the grave diggers to take care of it when it it arrives in the necropolis. Uh, but in um, in the fourth century you had literal ferrymen of the dead uh, <laughs> carrying the, the coffins on barges instead taking them to and from the necropolis and and it's just such a cool imagery that that you can have uh, a city because of course such a place is going to have at least a few vampires skulking around and hiding and you're going to have oh, yes. like Cappadocians doing experiments and you're going to have uh, Nosferatu hiding and, and probably a mad Malkavian seer or two and, and so it's a, it's such a cool thing uh, with the old and new and and this place was important for uh, for ages. Um, Vincent van Gogh and uh, Gauguin actually went there and painted together uh, oh. when when they come uh, came around uh, and and so it could also be like a really cool place for Toreador hanging around just admiring the uh, the artwork and the kind of sculptures and. Um, and the masonry from from centuries of of tomb building, uh, so so yeah, that was just one of those really uh, evocative things that uh, that kind of caught my eye. Uh, so so yeah, it's it, it I like these things. <laughs> well done, writers. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so one of, one of the things that's that's key here in, in France are the courts of love mm. um, which uh, the vampires adopted from mortals and became sort of the the de facto um, overarching political organizations and I just they seem to have developed developed quite fast and gained a lot of information influence in a very short time i get that the local to doors just thought this was the greatest thing ever and adopted them but given how slow vampires are to change it just seems like it, it's going a bit too fast but on the other hand i can understand them wanting the course of love because it is a very iconic thing and it syncs up well with the the Toreador, so i can i can sort of forgive yeah that. I, I agree it's it's a cool concept and and it's <laughs> 
I don't know. In in a way, it's kind of what you imagine what medieval Toreador would be like. They would be kind of like the the romantic uh, knights in shining armor wannabes. So yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense in that way. Um, what what I kind of like is is how they kind of contrast that with um, with the guilds and the kind of the the artisans mm. in. Um, in places like Flanders, and they also mentioned that both the Prometheans and the Ferrores, uh, Ferrores uh, are quite common in, in Flanders, which makes sense because that's kind of where you get the, the almost proto-industrial areas, uh, which would yeah. mean, and, and you know more about this since you've looked into guilds more than I have, but you, you get these kind of uh, proto-working class kind of people and, and they're like they, they want more since they see how much they produce and and so on uh so so if you want you could also have kind of a <coughs> pardon uh, kind of a, a contrast between the courts of love and the more kind of down to earth down to earth yeah yeah exactly blue color yeah yeah exactly so uh, chapter three is the holy roman empire and holy crap giving its size and importance it does not get a lot of page count dedicated to it which is sad uh, and i'm not just saying that because it's one of my favorite areas of medieval europe now it was while i was reading this chapter that i realized i was getting a bit tired of clan ventru <laughs> and in general i think this book focuses a bit too much on the high clans ventru and la sombra in particular yeah. um but anyway this this chapter was in my opinion rather weak with very little hi uh, mortal history and a lot of space dedicated to the Ventru conflict. Yeah. The same goes for the description of the various cities and other areas where you mainly get information about what the vampires there are up to and very little about the actual history and mortal culture. Now, there are some interesting and inspirational stuff, but I feel like it gets buried. Now, I have more complaints, but I just wanted to get your take on the chapter before I get into my, um, my rant. <laughs> yeah, don't, don't worry, you'll get time for that, but... Uh, but yeah, I, I kind of agree. Uh, they, they do point out some things because some of the things they talk about, they also talk about in the chapter for Italy, which kind of makes sense because geographically, they, they were the Holy Roman Empire uh, covered large parts of Italy, but politically, mm. uh, it was a complete mess. And, and what I do like that they, and, and they basically point it out, I don't remember if it's in the chapter on, on uh, HRE or, or the chapter in Italy, but, but basically they, they kind of uh, show the d dilemma of, of having such a large empire to control. So basically the, the emperor would, he, he would have to go down to, to his um, domains in Italy to kind of, uh, deal with with the people there and deal with the pope and uh, and and just make sure that they were behaving and he would stick around there for some time and then he he would have to go back up to to the, the german areas because uh, while he was away the the local nobles would like yeah well hey the, the emperor's been away for a few years and have you noticed that we don't really need him perhaps we should get rid of him and and so <laughs> If, if you read the history of the Holy Roman Empire, a lot of it is, um, or, or it's a recurring event that, that basically the emperor goes down, take care of, of politics in, in Italy, and then he has to go back to, to uh, Germany to take care of the local uh, nobles basically plotting against him because 
like yeah he's he's on the other side of the alps what the hell is he going to do um exactly and and uh i i also like that they kind of shows uh or at least i perhaps i'm not reading too much into it but uh but hardest that is kind of doing the same thing with his moving court that that yeah. he's he's moving around and he's doing it kind of in an unpredictable manner so uh so his subjects doesn't really know when he's going to show up so uh, so it it gets a bit more difficult to plot against him um but yeah back, back to your complaints i i want to hear about it okay so first and foremost the chapter does not mention how the holy roman emperor is elected which is mm. a huge oversight and in fact if you just skim the chapter you'd be forgiven for thinking that the position is just hereditary rather than being elective yeah. Uh, and I think that that's I mean that that's really something that you ought to have. And there's almost nothing about Charlemagne, which is really sad, especially since he wasn't really mentioned in the France chapter either. And he is the defining person when it comes to the formation of the Holy Roman Empire. Um, then there's the chapter on Frankfurt where they mentioned the brothers of Saint Mark or the Marksbrüder, but they won't be around until the 15th century because they were longsword fencing masters, and that doesn't exist yeah. yet. Um, <laughs> then they say that Prague is in Transylvania, which it no, isn't. Yeah. Uh, it is mentioned uh, in Transylvania by night, but Transylvania by night covers much of Eastern Europe, and Prague is in Bohemia. So, uh, and finally, the Hanseatic League. Mm -hmm. It didn't exist in 1230, mm -hmm. though some town alliances, like the League of Rhenish towns, did. The Hanse got its start in 1241 with the Hamburg-Lübeck alliance. However, Lübeck was the queen of the Hanse. Um, and the city that influenced the Hansa the most. Uh, so it's it's strange that, that they sort of focus on Hamburg as the city of the Hansa. Uh, the first written occurrence of the word Hansa dates to 1266 or 67, when the King of England granted trading rights to the German Hansa. And the Hanseatic League didn't truly become the Hanseatic League until uh, 1356, when they had their first Hansa Tag, which was a meeting of representatives from all the, the cities. So... In this chapter and in other chapters, they talk a lot about the Hanseatic League. It it's it hasn't started yet at yeah. all. Um, also, uh, the the Silent Fury, uh, which is a, a group of of Canites that they talk about at the end of the chapter, I think that is a complete waste of space. They don't do anything, in my opinion, and that space could have been used so much better. So yeah, a bit disappointed in this chapter. Yeah, well, if if you want something more to complain about, uh, on page 42, they misspelled the word chronicles. Uh, <laughs> and, and again, it's 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 just kind of like uh, like what I, I mentioned before with the the uh, with Bruja being mentioned as perhaps not being a high fan. There are a few uh, editorial mistakes that that they should have covered. There's there's also on um, later on there's there's one of those C page and instead of page number it just says XX. Uh, so ah, uh, the classic page. Yeah, XX. exactly. But yeah, I, you're right. I um, I feel like this book might have been a bit rushed because it does seem like there are more editorial mistakes here than than you'd normally find. Yeah, and and like you mentioned, I think uh, either it was kind of rushed or it was just so big that that they didn't really get a a, a proper read through. But because there are some things. Now that you mention it, that that could have been best left on on the cutting room floor. Uh, for example, the the silent furies, which 
I don't know, it sounds more like kind of a made-up death metal band than than like a, <laughs> a proper sect of vampires. Sometimes, I, 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 know, I know that sometimes they're kind of overlapping, but... <laughs> but, but yeah, it's. I I agree. They they really didn't do much. Uh, I I can't really even figure out what they're supposed to be. If they're supposed to be like some kind of proto anarchs or proto Sabbath or or just a bunch of disgruntled uh, vampires in general, and and like they they could have edited it down a bit or just mentioned them in the passing in one of the sidebars uh, instead of of giving them so much space. Yeah, I, I agree with you completely on that one, actually. So chapter four is Iberia, not Spain. Mm. And obviously there already was a Dark Ages Iberia book. So much of this chapter repeats information from that as well as information from Vale of, of Night. I don't really have much to say here. The chapter takes the timeline from 1220 to 1230. And I think it's well written. But if you really want Iberian information, then there's Iberia by night. That's where you want to go. And if you want our take on Iberia by night, we have an episode uh, about that. So do you have any specific comments on this chapter? No, I, I, I was just going to mention that that we got some really good information from, from one of our listeners. Uh, and ah, yes. so, so, yeah, that's hats off to, to them. Um, I'm just going to check my notes no I, I really didn't have anything it, like like you mentioned there is uh, quite a bit of repetition um, there is yeah I I couldn't really find anything that I uh, think was worth mentioning and pointing out it's uh, what what I do like is that it, it is quite of a uh, it, it's not uh, it's kind of a balanced uh, picture between the uh, the Christians and the Muslims. It's not like the oh the Muslims bad they they are just the uh, Asmites running around assassinating people and, and eating children. But but there's like they're they are on equal terms. Yeah, and it's and it's not it's also not like oh Christianity bad hates everything yeah. uh, about knowledge and equality. Yeah. No 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 it's it's. Like you said, a balanced look at it, which is is really nice to see in a in a mm. historic gaming book. And and of course, a lot of the things are quite confusing, and and this goes for a lot of the politics that runs through the entire book, <laughs> yeah. because it was quite confusing back then, uh, especially like for us who thinks like, well, Spain, that's that country down on the Iberian Peninsula, and then you have Portugal next to it, and then you have. Um, Italy, which is just the boot, right? And and then you realize that no, yeah. there's no. a lot more to it. <laughs> uh, and and you have yeah. like a Norman kingdom of Sicily and and other interesting things like that. Um, so so yeah, things things are interesting. I don't mind that this is basically just recapping Iberia by night and then updating it to twelve thirty because it's basically. You want to play in Iberia, get Iberia by night. If you have this book, then you can use that to yeah. uh, to update the timeline. I don't think that they, they needed to do anything more yeah, than that. I, I agree. So chapter five is Italy. and Or as a sidebar points out, those parts of what will one day become mm. Italy that are not part of the Holy Roman Empire. So pretty much the papal states and the city-state republics and i like that they're basically saying okay we're calling this italy because that's the easy way for people to understand it but just be aware that this has nothing to do with what modern it modern day italy yeah. is so it's it's nice of them to just say okay this is how it is um and i would say that italy at this point is just 
perfect for a game of vampire. There are large cities with lots of activity going on even after sundown and plenty of ruins and underground places to hide from the sun and a lot of politics, both mortal and canine, happening. Um, I think this chapter does a really good job depicting a large and complex region and it especially does a good job describing mortal politics and then giving a bit of info on how vampires interact with that. Um, this chapter also has a lot of really good information on guilds, on the church and on universities that can really help bring the period alive, so to speak. Uh, and it can also be used in other regions, not just Italy. I found this chapter very inspiring and I think especially the section on guilds that can help people understand the difference between the 13th century and our time because I think a lot of people tend to think of guilds as medieval trade unions and this shows how they most certainly were not the same as, as modern day trade yeah. unions. Um, so after reading this chapter I, I kind of want to set a chronicle in uh, Bologna uh, centered on its huge university. Um, but but what do you have to say about this chapter? Yeah, I, I agree. There are a lot of, of really interesting things going on, and and as you mentioned, it's uh, it, it really is a good place to to set the vampire chronicle uh, because you you basically get all sorts of different uh, like if if you want to have uh, political plotting and scheming, you can have that one. If if you want to have like uh, uh, mercenaries running around um, pillaging the countryside and, and fighting against those you can have that uh, and what's interesting about uh, Italy um, especially or, or uh, which which makes it perfect for, for a place of uh, for a campaign is that since you had so much trade uh, and since you had uh, you had crusaders from from a bunch of different countries coming back and forth, and you had uh, emissaries to the pope and and things like that, it it does kind of make sense. Like you you could probably fit in any kind of character from like if if you really want a a Scottish noble uh, character showing up, then then yeah, why not? He he could be on a pilgrimage for to to. Um, uh, Rome, which will probably be interesting if he's an actual canine, but but people still went there from from all over the world, uh, and and or you could have like uh, you, you could have uh, e Egyptian um, mer uh, merchants running around, or or you could have yeah. uh, Greek philosophers or whatever. It's it's a place, uh, and it, kind of depending on on where in Italy you you decide of, uh, to play in, of course, but. Uh, it, it makes sense to uh, for for all kinds of people to show up there. Yeah, and there's a reason why they say all roads lead to, uh, yeah. to Rome. And I'll add the corollary that um, all sea routes lead to either Venice, Pisa, or Genoa. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and and again, those are also really good places to to set your uh, your your um, uh, games in. Uh, one one th sh thing uh, to remember, uh, and I don't think that it necessarily has to be a problem, but but the kind of the golden age of of the Italian city states, if if we can call it that, where where you had like the uh, the huge incomes from from uh, commerce, uh, wasn't really you, you really didn't get that for for at least another hundreds of years, uh, hundred years. Um, when you get into the Renaissance, that's that's when the the city states really show shine, uh, 
yeah. and and really comes into the room. But but you can basically have the same kind of of game, uh, and you, even back uh, back when this is set in in twelve thirty, you you still have like you you can see the seeds having been planted for that and if you want to have a game that spans a couple of hundreds of years you you can easily just go from uh like basically building your own city state um and and yeah. i don't know is is that something that you think would be plausible that that you kind of you invent your own city state and you kind of build it from I scratch think that could be would, really would cool. that make a good game do you think as a storyteller? I think that could make a really, really fun game. Start relatively early and then, yeah, have the characters really tied into this imaginary city-state. I think that could be a really fun game. But, but yeah, that's that's one of the <laughs> one of my comments. I I also like that they mentioned yeah. the uh, the populi, the uh, the kind of militia trade union political party thing that that a lot of the city states had where it's it's basically the citizen soldiers um and i i like the idea of those of course they're they are they or they were a real thing uh but they kind of invoke the the citizen soldiers of ancient roman greece for me that it's kind of like you were supposed to yeah take up arms and in in some city states, you were basically the uh, the city guard as well. That you you it was basically a neighborhood watch that you took turns uh, guarding the city and and uh, catching thieves and, and and people like that. Um, and it also reminds me this kind of uh, and we're gonna, probably gonna get into more of this when we come to Scandinavia. But the the whole armed citizen thing. Um, and I mentioned it previously that up in Sweden we actually have. Uh, regional laws that dictate what kind of arms and armor free men have to own so that they can defend the country and and serve serve the country yeah. when needed. So so you kind of see this the similarities between uh, between different uh, areas and and I always like things like that. Uh, so so yeah, yeah. It's, I I like the details and I like I like the stuff so to speak. So chapter six is Hungary and the Slavic East. Good name, uh, since most of Hungary's population is not mm. Slavic. The map, as you mentioned, is a bit lacking. It only shows Hungary and Poland, while the chapter itself covers more, and you don't get that much of an idea of of how it relates to to the rest of Europe. Um, it it starts with some politics, and while there is a focus on vampire politics, especially updating things after Transylvania by night and under the Black Cross, I don't think it's overwhelming, and we do get mortal politics as well. In fact, it's kind of funny how in this book they go by real history, when in Transylvania by night they specifically said that they'd moved the Teutonic Knights into yeah. Transylvania early for dramatic reasons, so that changes a bit yeah. here. But... Well, real, real history catches up to you. Yeah, um, as a player of Transylvania Chronicles, it's odd to see uh, Nova Apad described as a powerful, influential, and skilled politician because that's not really the picture that the campaign paints of her. But uh, um, I mean, that that might be the influence of of, uh, of us as player characters. Mm. Oh, and and we get some information about the relationship between Vladimir Rustovich and Ratu of Bistria, uh, which might be of interest to the two of us. Yeah, yeah, I, I noticed that as well. Uh, yeah, that was that was quite interesting and i i'm sure that we'll have reason to to return to this chapter uh, in 
I don't know, about a year, perhaps? Yeah, pretty much uh, f 15th to 19th of February next yeah. year. <laughs> um, uh, following the politics, we get a, we have a look at the various regions. And uh, in general, I think it's well written and gives some good insight. I wish they devoted more time to the difference between the Catholic and Orthodox churches, since this is the area where they really clash. Um, and when it comes to the Russian principalities, they really missed an opportunity to highlight Novgorod. Yeah. Um, which is a very, very important trade yeah. center for trade with Western Europe. They they went all out on Kiev, and I think they should have, have focused more on Novgorod because I think that is just at least as important as Kiev. Um, but what comments do you yeah, have? Yeah, I, I agree. I also um, mentioned that that they should have talked more about Novgorod, especially since it's it's kind of interesting because it was... I, I think the it's the the official name that that historians use use is actually the Republic of Novgorod because well it, it wasn't a democratic yeah. republic but it's you you still elected your leader in a way that was uh, quite uh, unusual for both the time and especially the the place in Eastern Europe uh, and and so it it kind of marks it out as as something different and and you could probably do a lot of fun things with it like for example if you have um Bruja who who sees that as a as a shining beacon of uh, i don't know freedom or liberty or whatever it is that Bruja usually want um so so yeah it's it's a bit of a missed opportunity especially since uh Novgorod also had a lot of of politics and wars uh, with with Sweden and also the Teutonic Knights. Uh, speaking of, I I do like that they they have uh, some really good information uh, on the Teutonic Knights and and show just how influential they were. And, and we spoke about them the, before that they're they're basically a a a private military contractor uh, company who got their own nation. And and you can really see the yeah. beginning of it with uh, the wonderfully named. Completely historically real person Hermann von Salsa, uh, and if if that's not a name that that you want tattooed in a heart, then I don't know what is because <laughs> come on, Hermann von Salsa, yeah, you exactly. can you can almost see him with his kind of Teutonic samba outfit. Uh, but <laughs> I'm just I'm imagining him in a very low cut Teutonic or what's it called? What you wear over yeah, your tabard. armor? Uh, circled, yeah, tabard, yes, yeah. uh, and then a, a very, very large, very gaudy cross <laughs> necklace. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that would, that would be quite a sight. But uh, okay, so uh, just if anybody's ever going to uh, play Hermann von Salsa in a a LARP, oh, yes. this is how we expect you yeah. to look. Oh, um, good lord! <laughs> so, um, shall we move out of of uh, Hungary and? Uh, and on to chapter seven. Uh, yeah, I think yeah, I think we're gonna have to spend some time in chapter seven. Oh so yeah, let's yeah let's because do that. chapter seven is Scandinavia and the world. No, sorry, Scandinavia and the Baltics. And right from the start, I have to question why they've lumped these two regions regions together in one chapter. They really have no cultural, religious, or linguistic ties, and it's only recently that their histories have been tied together due to the Scandinavian Crusades into the Baltics. Uh, the book tries it. Try to tries to play it off as being the savage pagan lands beyond civilization, but then rightly goes on uh, straight into explaining how the lands of Scandinavia are no longer pagan and savage. Yeah. And then there's the yeah. map. 
they've made the standard mistake of not given, giving the southern tip of the Scandinavian peninsula to Denmark. Now, to modern eyes, it might make sense why that would be part of Sweden, since it's on the same mainland. However, back then, the terrain that separated Skåne from the north was more of a hindrance than the narrow strip of water of the Öresund. So something to keep in mind when it comes to the Middle Ages is that water was just as often a way to tie places together as it was a border. Um, and also the only city shown in Denmark is Copenhagen. And while it was built as the capital, it's not the biggest or most important city in 1230 in yeah. Denmark. Cities like Ribe, Lund and Roskilde were all more important than Copenhagen. Um, and with that, I will let you critique the Swedish part of the yeah, map. Yeah, and, and I will. <laughs> Don't you worry about it. Uh, but yeah, first of all, the and, and you already mentioned it, that, that the, the southern tip of the, the uh, peninsula should, uh, at least for a few hundred years, belong to, uh, to Denmark. Uh, because you, you have a huge forest and you, you have also a kind of a highlands uh, in... in uh, the, the middle southern part of Sweden, which makes it really difficult to uh, to to uh, travel through, uh, and so yeah, traveling by boat was uh, a lot easier. Uh, and speaking of traveling by boat, if you did have a boat, you could usually go to the huge island of Gotland that is for some reason missing. <laughs> yes, and yes, and they they spend quite a bit of time yeah, talking about Gotland, which, which makes it even a bit more weird. Because if you're like, oh, yo, so where where is Gotland on the map? You you have a bunch of of islands up, like you have one really tiny one up uh, on the east coast of Sweden, which I don't really know what it's supposed to be, and then you have a few islands um, near Finland. Uh, I, as a side note, I do uh, like the fact that they have made uh, a large part of Finland actually belonging to Sweden, since by now it had been more or less incorporated uh, into Sweden. Uh, the city of, of yeah, Åbo that they or remembered, but Turku giving Denmark, in Finnish no, no, no. <laughs> uh, was first mentioned in uh, a letter from the Pope in 1229, uh, which also kind of shows how important... Um, it, it was like if if you get mentioned by the Pope it can't be it can't be too unimportant so to speak uh, but but yeah you mm. also have a few islands in um, uh, in the Bay of Riga uh, which yeah there are some islands there but the really big one uh, and and also the island uh, the really big one Gotland is completely missing as is the the smaller but equally important island of Öland. Uh, so so yeah, yeah. You, you get an F on this map map writers unfortunately it, it yeah they also missed Bornholm by the way sorry they also missed Bornholm yeah but that's uh, smaller and Denmark, missing so it's, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but but what what I what I do want to point out is that they kind of um, they they for some reason they called the very northern part of of the kind of where Norway Sweden and modern day Finland come together. They called that Finland, um, and yeah, no, it wasn't really uh, Finland in the way that it is now. Really, wasn't an, an independent country. You you got uh, you you got colonized by, or they got colonized by by the Swedes, and and up where it says Finland, you basically or you mostly had uh, in both Sweden, Norway, and and where it says Finland, you mostly had uh, Sápmi people. 
um, which yep. is another problem which we might come into when it comes to the to the free state, uh, and that is that you really didn't have that many people living there, so it it's not really a good place for uh, for vampires. So if if there's one place where you really could place the the werewolves and and like the non vampiric um, supernatural creatures if you want those then then the northern part of the scandinavian peninsula would would be perfect because the huge uh, stretches of of uh, basically untouched wilderness you have uh, the people living there live there in in harmony with nature uh, a, as much as any human can do but but there were still there were, there were few people you had mountains you had um, in uh, you you had deep forests you had you had deep rivers you had to cross and and so it's it's this really uh, almost magical landscape where where you you could easily see like werewolves or fey or or whatever running around and so so yeah i think that's that's it for the map but we we have other things to discuss uh, well, there's one more thing I want to to get your opinion on. Is it seems like there are no cities? Oh yeah, in Sweden. Yeah, we, we should have at least the city of Uppsala because that was the really important yeah. one. Uh, Stockholm was about to be founded. Uh, we we also have uh, yeah we we do have a bunch of smaller cities like uh, that that are going to be important uh, later on. Uh, but but yeah, I I would have. I would have been happy enough if they would just have placed Uppsala on the map properly. Uh, well, and also Visby, but yeah, they, they don't have, have Gotland. Yeah, to place they don't it have on. the island of Gotland, <laughs> so you can't have the, the city of Visby, which is on the island of Gotland. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then there's the vampire NPCs on the sidebar, and I really like that. Not only do we get a fair few non-high clan mm. canines, there's also a good number that's not a very low generation. However, I don't like the use of Shakespearean names. I know that there was a Rosenkrantz family as far back as at least the 14th mm. century in Scandinavia. And I know that Fortinbras was a real Norwegian name, but I find it distracting that they're using these Shakespearean names that were used in Hamlet yeah. in this context. I, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't really work for me. Um, and they've made a pretty glaring error with Werther, who is repeatedly said to be the child of the All-High in yeah. Uppsala. But he's seventh generation, and the All-High has been established to be fourth yeah, generation. So, that's... so uh, he can be a yeah, he can be a descendant of him, but he can't be a child. Yeah, of him. and and speaking of of NPCs, the fact that uh, like points for actually having an important female character, but they just give her the yeah. name of Ulvstotir, which is like uh, yeah. So that's that's her dad, but what's her name? What what name does yeah, she exactly. go by? And uh, like you you wouldn't have that, and and you can't even say that. Well, that's just the name that that is uh, left in the chronicles, and that's the only name that was written down. Because no, you would write down just as you you write down all the the Haralds and the Eriks, and and then you usually give them by names like Harold Bluetooth. Um, and uh, Eric the legless and and things like that. You would also write down her name and then perhaps add on Ulvstotter uh, as her by name. Or in this game, in case it's a patronym telling us that her her dad's name is Ulf. But come on, what's her name? 
Yeah, exactly. That that's that's quite a miss mm. there. Um, so anyway, we start with the Scandinavian countries. Denmark first, obviously, as the best, greatest, and most important of them. Well. Um, <laughs> in general, I think both the history, culture, and canine sections are well done. Though again, I wish they'd given some lines to Ribe, Roskilde, and Lund to show that these are the more important cities. They uh, they have a small section on trade that kind of dismisses Gotland, which isn't quite true, uh, even though Gotland isn't depicted on the map. At this time, Gotland is still much more important than Copenhagen when it comes to the Baltic trade. Um, I also think that they could have talked a bit more about the huge herring markets <laughs> in Skåne, uh, just because it was a major source of yeah. income, and it was well, well visited by merchants from all over Northern Europe. Um, it, it may seem weird that, okay, a herring market, but no, these salted herrings made their way all throughout Europe because you had days uh, throughout the week where you're not allowed to eat meat, but you could eat fish. So salted herring, that was that was actually a staple food throughout most of Catholic Europe. And most of that came from the herring markets in Skåne. Um, so Norway is next. And again, the, in, the info here is in general good. I What I think they missed out on is the fact that uh, Trondheim is a major pilgrimage destination yeah. with all that that entails. In fact, it was in the top five of European Pilgrim routes. Yeah. Um, so it really brought a lot of people to that yeah, area. And, and you can basically walk from, from over where I am to uh, to Trondheim or, or Nidaros, um, the Nidaros do- Dome, as the, the cathedral there is called. Uh, they do mention that it that it is uh, a, a pilgrim site, but but yeah, I, I would love to see some more emphasis on 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 just how important it was. Yeah, because um, from what I've read, basically after Rome, Santiago de Compostela, and um, what's the one in England? Is, yeah, it's not uh, is I, it uh, Canterbury or Westminster? Canterbury, yeah. Canterbury. Uh, after those three, it's probably Trondheim or Nidaros, as it was also called. That was probably the next one on, of, of European um, pilgrimage routes. And, and that really brings in a lot of money and a lot of people, yeah. and that's something vampires are into. Yeah, I yeah, uh, but in in general, the section on on Norway is uh, is actually quite well written, I think, and and I I like that they have managed to uh, to get into the the like the the more interesting uh, details, like they they mentioned Birkebeinene, um, uh, which um, it, it was uh, it was it started out as an insult, and it means the the birch feet or the birch legs, and and it was um, a name given to uh, the opponents uh, of a political faction, and it, it, it kind of meant that yeah, they're so poor, so they can't afford real shoes, so they have to wear uh, shoes made of of, of birch uh, bark on on their feet. Uh, but but you have this um, you have this really cool event that was actually made into to a Norwegian film just I think like five or six years ago with. Uh, Christopher Hivu, uh, who people know uh, as uh, Thorman Giantsbane, uh, and it's it's basically the uh, you you had this Birkebeiner. Uh, they had to uh, ski across the country with uh, the the two year old uh, prince regent uh, to keep him away from from assassins and 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 their political opponents and. When he was in safety, they kind of managed to um, to secure the, the uh, lineage to the throne, and and then they won and uh, basically 
peace reigned forever in in Norway or at least for a while. Uh, but but it's <laughs> it's it's a really cool thing and and what I like about it and and kind of we we've touched upon it before but but Norway sometimes is is kind of left out uh and and it yeah. was a really important uh country like um, they they mention it in uh, when we talk about Scotland in this book that that you have like connections to to Norway and and you have the uh the Nord AR which is um what is it it's Shetland and Orkney and I think it's the Faroes yeah, the, the northern, northern islands. islands they they still kind of belong to or at least pay uh, uh pay homage to the Norwegian kings and and you also have um, you you also have the the, the Nidaros uh, Cathedral, which was a pilgrimage, and and you also have um, like like Norway is a proper country, and and they um, they founded a, a cathedral school in in Oslo in I think it was eleven fifty seven, which is is quite early. They they didn't it it wasn't a proper university, but it was still uh, a place for education. Uh, and you get his cathedral yeah. schools. We have one in Uppsala as well, where I actually attended high school, and and it dates back to the medieval cathedral school. Uh, and uh, the Swedish king Gustav Vasa uh, went there, but he uh, the, he he really didn't like studying. So the the legend goes that <laughs> he um, stabbed his dagger through his his Latin textbook and and basically said. Uh, I don't give a damn about uh, you, uh, meaning his teacher and and your studies. And then he left and never came back. Uh, which <laughs> me having a really nice Latin teacher when I started there, I would never do. Um, but but yeah, so so you have like the the point I'm trying to make is that Norway was actually a, a country where you had education, you had culture, you had religions, you had diplomatic and political ties to other countries. So uh, and and this actually comes through. Yeah, you can tell that the writer of this chapter is Norwegian. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, so yeah, it's it's well done on that one as well. Um, there's a sidebar on the gangrel battles with the Fenrir werewolves, and as I've mentioned a few times, I kind of prefer to keep the specific game lines separate. And in the in the other chapters, whenever they mention non vampire supernaturals they don't give any kind of specifics so but other people like it so it's it's take yeah and, leave and, it. and both of us just we didn't even mention all of the fae and stuff that was supposed to be in ireland so uh, no. but it, it makes sense for for at least the leprechauns yeah. to be in ireland but but yeah and and i agree <laughs> we we mentioned this before uh, take it or leave it yeah. yes uh, and then we get to sweden and finland which i i'm going to turn it over to you for yeah those two. exactly and uh the yeah, let, let's start with Sweden and and uh, overall, it's 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 kind of a good one. It's the we we have the same problem with that that we have with a large part of Europe, and and it's that you just don't really get enough people to sustain a lot of vampires. Uh, but yeah, Sweden in in the early twelve hundreds, there's a lot of things going on, and as I mentioned, it, it kind of. Um, uh, solidified its hold on uh, on Finland. Uh, so if if you look at if if you look of a map of of Sweden, how it should be, it should basically be like the the middle part of um, of of uh, Scandinavia. So you you have um, the areas around there. There are two big lakes in Sweden that they also left out from the map called Vätten and Vänern, <laughs> uh, and and them being big lakes they were uh, centers of of uh, 
uh, of population so so people live there so so of course that's where the actual kingdoms would be and then you had if you just go east uh, you have the bulge the, the the bulging part of finland rather uh, which quickly was incorporated into sweden uh, and so you had a lot of, of settlements on the on the west coast of uh, of finland uh, and like i mentioned obo uh, which was a, a really important city um, uh, and it, it has a really nice castle by the way built uh, a bit later but uh, you you had all these places and and it makes sense for for sweden to be a country kind of confined by uh, the danish skåne in the south and then you just have this mm. uh, the, these huge tracts of, of wilderness in the north which they weren't completely uninhabited but it was kind of like yeah it's it's a frontier you we we can go there and trade for furs but it's not going to be important for for that long uh, so it makes more sense to if we want to expand our countries or our country we will go to the east because there you have finland and and they have mm. uh, they have a coastline where, where we can uh, go by boat and as you mentioned water was uh, was a nice way of of uh, transporting things uh, so um yeah, but but we we come to the mortal uh, the the mortal uh, affairs of of Sweden. Uh, I I would have liked it if they would have mentioned more that that Finland was actually a part of of Sweden and and not, not just uh, like the, the 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 kind of eastern or northeastern free state that they're talking about. Um, because as I mentioned, they. There aren't really enough people to to cover all of it, um, and the yeah, it's it, it isn't as good as Norway, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Uh, but <laughs> but like I I see the kind of things that they they kind of um, they they kind of build around because I know the stuff. But but if if you don't know the Swedish history in in the way that I do. Um, it you you don't really get a lot of things to work with, um, so so yeah they, they could have there, there's nothing really bad about it I think but it's it's just not enough for me, uh, and of course I'm biased mm. but but take it and leave it. Um, I I do <laughs> want to mention the the noyad uh, I think they're supposed to be pronounced which is the kind of yeah. uh, weird vampires that uh, dwell with the Sapmi people. Um, and I really don't like them because I, I don't know if they're going for some kind of like Cthulhu-esque uh, gangrel thingy, like the, the like just something really odd living amongst the um, uh, amongst the Aboriginal people. But in in a way, it, I don't know. And and please correct me if I'm wrong or if I'm if I'm like oversimplifying things or or judging things too harsh. But it it kind of turns the entire culture of, of the Sapmi into this kind of um, mysticized, almost ex- ex- exotified um, natives that like, yeah, they, they travel with their weird pagan gods. And, and yeah. it, it doesn't really work for me. It, it's, it's just a bit too much. Um, and again, like if you're going to have supernatural creatures here, make them something else than, than vampires. Uh, because it makes a lot more yeah, sense. There is uh, a hint of the uh, magical nature yeah. 
about this that uh, doesn't really sit well. So, so yeah. yeah. Anyway, we end with the Baltic lands, and and before we get to those, I I have to say I'm uh, I'm a bit sad that they left out Iceland. Yeah. I know that you can't really say that much about Iceland because there's not a lot of people living there and I can imagine like one or two gangle mucking about but it is the place where we have Snorri yeah. Sturluson and where we get like 90% of our information about uh, quote unquote Viking religion yeah. and practices and stuff like that so they might have just mentioned Iceland but apparently whoever uh, the guy who wrote this chapter really doesn't like islands <laughs> yeah. it seems yeah and, and, and like they that. don't <laughs> mention Greenland as well and, and Greenland during this part, I think it was actually a part of Norway, uh, but but it's yeah, probably, it's still. Yeah. The, what's interesting about Greenland is that it was um, and and it, it was first discovered by by Europeans by by Norwe- Norwegian Vikings uh, or Icelandic Vikings, but they were basically Norwegian, uh, and and they had colonies there until I think. Uh, the research shows that they didn't really disappear until the 14 or 1500s uh, and we don't yeah. really know why which could be a cool game in itself uh, and according to some research the vikings might have been there before the inuit people at least in some parts of it which is kind of cool yeah um but but like in the 1200s greenland was it, it was a place you could go there and it, it wasn't just these this um, almost uninhabited um, island made of, of uh, ice and polar bears. It's like you had settlements there. You had trade there. Uh, so so yeah, exactly. and, and they actually mentioned Greenland in a few of the other texts, like with, with, when talking about trade. So they should have expanded on that. And the same goes for Iceland. Iceland was, it was, it was yeah, it was, it was kind of a country. They, they had their, their thing... Um, and they had there, which was the parliament, um, and and they had people living there, and and uh, they, I don't know if they still raided Ireland, but they they used to do that, uh, and so, like leaving the, it out completely doesn't really make sense to me. No, I think we've we've established that whoever wrote this doesn't yeah. like islands. <laughs> um, but yeah, we end with the Baltic lands, Latvia, Lithuania, and Prussia. It's kind of fun that if you go back some decades. Prussia was pretty much synonymous with Germany, but at this point, it's pagan territory being conquered by the Germanic knights and not part of the Holy Roman yeah. Empire. So, uh, so it 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 after a couple of hundred years, then Germany is Prussia. But right now, Prussia is outside of yeah. Germany. Um, anyway, that's not much space here, but I really think that they do a good job with it, and especially I like the uh, the sidebar on paganism and how it's hard to generalize about yeah. paganism uh, because obviously. It's a very catch-all term. I don't have much else to say. I like this, and I didn't really find anything that stuck out. Well, I I found found one thing, or rather, I didn't, and that's the entire country of Estonia, <laughs> uh, which which is kind of interesting because they they actually mentioned that in uh, when um, when they talk about the Baltic and and. They first man- mention Latvia and say south of Finland and the Russian ports in the Baltic, with with an almost strategically placed coastline between the east and the west lies Latvia. No, that's Estonia. So, like you, you have the three Baltic countries, and and I don't know if Estonia was actually 
its own country back then or if Latvia kind of ruled them or, or what it was. But you, you should at least mention it because the, the, the Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia and Lithuania, they, they are their own different cultures and they have different languages and, and they, they are quite distinct. They have different flags, so they must be different pe- peoples. Uh, so, so, yeah, it's, I, I don't know if, what, if they just missed it or the, the person supposed to write it was just sick or whatever. But, but again, it's, it's just one of those mistakes that they, they really should have uh, taken care of and, and at least mentioned uh, in, in some way. Uh, but but yeah, except for that, uh, what they actually write about Prussia and, and Lithuania and Latvia is uh, is really cool. Um, again, we we have the knightly orders uh, showing up and basically taking over everything and 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 ruling yeah. as a country. But but yeah, there there are some things in this chapter that that they really shouldn't have missed and and they do. So I'm a bit disappointed. Same here, but. It, it's going to be hard to uh, to really please us when it comes to information about Scandinavia, yeah. but I do think that the whole missing out on, on Gotland and everything yeah. that... Um, oh, Dude, if, if we have any Estonian listeners, please write something about the cool things that they could have included uh, from medieval oh, yeah. Estonia. Exactly. Uh, and if we have any listeners from Iceland, do the yeah. same. So chapter 8 concerns the Byzantine successor states, and much like the Italy chapter, I feel this is a perfect place for a chronicle. Not only do you have large cities, but after the, uh, but the chaos after the fall of Constantinople makes for an interesting setting. Um, so right off the bat, I must commend the writer for pointing out that the Byzantine Empire really was the Roman mm. Empire, or, well, the Eastern uh, Roman yeah. Empire. So it was really only the Western Roman Empire that fell in the fall of Rome. Because a lot of people are like, oh, in the 5th century there was the fall of Rome and that was the end of the Roman Empire. Nope, the Roman Empire continued right up until the 15th yeah. century. Um, just in yeah. the east. I also like the sidebar concerning Michael, the 4th generation Toreador who ruled Constantinople before the 4th Crusade. Um, the sidebar on the fate of the Library of the Forgotten is also nice. And in general, I think this chapter is really just full of story hooks. Um, one thing I feel they really miss out on talking about is the Bulgars, yeah. since they are constantly mentioned as enemies and sometimes allies of the nations in this chapter. And we don't really get much information about the Bulgars in chapter 6, which is about the, the Slavic East. And we don't get much information about them here. So it's like they're ever present, but but we don't learn about them. So I think they should have talked about the Bulgars either here or given more information in, yeah. in the earlier chapter. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, as uh, Speaking of sidebars, uh, I, I am actually not that fond of the, of the size of the sidebar of, of Pe- Michael. Uh, be, because yeah, yeah, that was a bit too again, much. Again, we, we already know about him from, from other books. And, and there's a lot of um, sections in this book where they reference other books, which I think is nice because then... Then you know where to go to get the information, and and I don't know. Yeah, Michael was important, but I think the key word here is was, uh, and and yeah. I think they they would have moved away, um, at least story wise, like meta plot wise, they they would have moved away from uh, from Michael uh, by now. Um, but I I do like the the small uh, side note on on. Uh, the names that uh, that people are are calling each other. So 
Uh, yeah. Franks doesn't just mean the French. It's also a synonym for crusader. And, and a Latin person can be um, anyone from Western Europe, whether or not they spoke Latin. Um, and they and and also while I'm uh, on the topic of of giving out compliments, I I really do like the the painting on page one sixty four, which uh, I don't know if it's supposed to be the sack of Constantinople or just a general kind of like uh, people misbehaving, but but you have a bunch of of soldiers carrying torches in the street and and someone is uh, trying to uh, I I'm gonna say kidnap a woman, uh, hopefully. Mm-hmm that's that's all but you never know but uh, and someone else is is stabbing what i assume is a monk but it's it's a very i wouldn't say nice picture because of of what it's depicting but it's uh it, yeah evocative. evocative and and suitable picture picture and unlike the cover where you have this uh the the modern kind of of uh, norwegian fishing village being burnt out down the the houses uh, actually look uh, like they should um, so so yeah that's mm. that's a nice touch but uh, and and also just tagging on to what you're saying that it, it's a place where you could really uh, set a really cool uh, campaign I think so the first region that's talked about is the remnant of the Byzantine Empire and I like that they don't spend too much time on Constantinople mm. itself since we already have a book covering that this section just gives us an update on the results of the Fourth Crusade um, we then get information on the Duchy of Athens, the Empire of Nicaea, the Despotate of Epirus and Thessalonica, and the Empire of Trebizond. Uh, due to recent upheavals, the history information is focused mainly on what happened after 1204, which makes sense and allows for more space to be dedicated to current events. Uh, I think this is very engaging, and I certainly feel like running or playing a chronicle set in one of these areas. Um, I have two last comments. The first is about the two characters that are given longer write-ups at the end of the chapter, Anna Komnina and uh, Natalia Sviatoslav. Uh, they're both hoping to become the new princes of Constantinople, or prince of Constantinople, not yeah. co-princes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, after the Latin Canaanites have been thrown out. I think both of them are quite well written. Uh, they offer a nice contrast to many other princes one of them is a Ventrue, but the other is Brugia, and they're both on path of humanity. And it's two women, and it's two powerful, influential, and strong women. So, uh, you know, kudos for these two uh, yeah. characters. I, I think that uh, this was good. Um, the second thing I want to mention is New Lacedaemonia, uh, the island state, uh, the island that is a Canite state. Uh, it got a mention in Ashen Thief and also, I think, one other book. Reading about this is really nostalgic for me since I was actually writing about New Lacedaemonia when the Dark Ages line got cancelled. Uh, this was to be part of a book called Brugia Chronicles. I was finished with the first draft of my section. I had it play-tested uh, and then the line got yeah. cancelled. So it's it's a bit nostalgic for me to yeah, look at did, that. Didn't we play uh, that game in, on... At, at one point uh, where where we had to find uh, or, or we did find a text uh, from the true Bruja. Yes. Yeah, it was, a, it was a really cool one. I turned it into a, a one-shot yeah. scenario and I'm kind of thinking if I could 
I don't know with with copyright and anything, but but I don't know if I could publish it on on the Storyteller's Vault. But uh, I'm going to look into the copyright, and then I'm going to do a bit of rewriting because um, I can also tell that this was way back when I wasn't as experienced a writer <laughs> as I as I was later. Yeah. But anyway, what what's your comments on this? Yeah, I, I like it, uh, and and I actually kind of recognized uh, New Lacedaemonia from from uh, uh, the game I played or we played. So it was like. And and I think you mentioned that that you uh, wrote part of it for for Bruja Chronicles and and so uh, like yeah that's that's where I recognize it from, uh, but yeah o- overall I I do like how they kind of made um, this this area which is kind of like uh, when when people talk about Greece and Athens and places like that you you your mind immediately goes to the, to the ancient Greece and and what things were back then and then you kind of have like a almost a, a blank spot until up until modern times yeah uh, and this shows that this wasn't the case it, it was part of history and it was part of politics and things happened and and there were people living there and, and uh, there were strifes and wars and and uh, diplomacy and everything else uh, and you you get some really good um kind of uh, storytelling seeds or inspirations for for what you want to do uh, and there's uh dimension uh don't know if i can find it but just they they mentioned that there is i think it's a nosferatu who basically uh lives alone uh with his yeah it's it's the nosferatu named mikon who lives in the city of of uh, nicopolis uh which has been burnt mm. down during the the fourth crusade um and 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 it's just i i think it's just such a cool uh image of of having this uh this city that, that just a couple of, of decades ago was was this um uh, living metropolis where with trade and people everywhere and now it's just a a sacked ruin and and then you have the quite the literal literal monsters hiding in the ruins uh and if if you think about it you can you can probably find other places like that if you don't want like if you want that cool thing but you don't want it don't want your game set in in greece then you could just do the same thing but but uh, have it be a, a, a cathar city in in southern france or or a a polish city being burnt down by by teutonic crusaders uh, or or whatever and it's it's just a cool image uh, and uh, I don't know it's it's something about an entire city being just void of human life uh, and and you have this at certain points like for instance during um, during World War II uh, the city of Ekenas which is uh, also one uh, one of the oldest cities in it's quite a small city but it's uh, it's a very nice city and it's where I did my military service uh, but it's the the entire city was evacuated for I think it was at least a few months during um, World War II uh, to to save the population from uh, from Russian bombings and I'm I'm just thinking that it's it it could be such a cool game it doesn't have to be a whole chronicle but just playing characters who's walking through this this empty city and and there should be life but recent. I don't know. For me, it's it's a really cool oh, image. Yeah. It it certainly is. I I I really like that. So yeah, we end 
<laughs> finally, <laughs> this has been a long yeah. one, with chapter 9, which is Utremer, which means the land beyond the sea, and it covers the Christian lands in Palestine. And looking at the sample Canaanites, you can certainly see who wrote this yeah. chapter. Um, they, they, they are, they are all of very, very low generation, uh, and there is a salubri warrior. Anyway, um, obviously, this is not geographically, geographically, wow, Europe, uh, but I think it makes sense since it's culturally Europe and it's tied into Western Europe. In general, I think this chapter does a good job of weaving mortal and canine history with a very limited space allotted to an ancient and politically complex yeah. region. I wish they'd spent some more time explaining just how amazing Emperor uh, Friedrich mm. II's regaining of the Jerusalem was. He took it back with no fighting, no blood bloodshed, just um, diplomacy while being yeah. excommunicated by the Pope. I mean, that was damn impressive. Yeah, we, we talked about that in a previous episode. But but yeah, it's it's a really yeah, cool exactly. thing to do. Uh, and, and not only yeah. doing that, while being the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, so he had to go back and forth across the Alps to make so, sure his subjects behaved. So, so yeah, he was quite a busy man. Exactly. Also, I think some word count could have been uh, used on the trade within the region. Sugar is mentioned, but we don't get an idea of just the scale of sugar production and the wealth it brings, especially to the knightly orders who actually had sugar production as part of their domain in some of their fortifications. You find ancient sugar producing places paraphernalia and tools and stuff like that and some information on the hot and cold trade wars between the various italian city-states uh they really play out here and that could be a very cool story hook uh, but really judging this chapter is kind of difficult for me because i spent a very long time reading about the region writing about the region for a book that i'm doing for storytellers vault so so what i've read elsewhere kind of bleeds together for me ah. so if if i could get your comments uh, on the <laughs> well chapter, I, I was just about to ask that that what's what's your take on this since you've done so much research about it i think it's it's a good start i i really liked having this chapter when i was doing my research for the mm. book that i'm doing yeah i uh, um, I don't like the picture on page 175 because it looks like something from, from like an, an early 20s Arabian Nights movie uh, just made black and white. But, <laughs> yes. but yeah, I, except for that, I, I agree with what you say about it, them trying to balance the thing uh, or, or like how they portray things uh, in a similar way that they did with Spain um, or, or the Iberian Peninsula. Uh, but yeah, there there is just so much in here, and and it's, it's so much cramped into a fairly low low page count. So yeah, I yeah I, I would actually really love to hear your take on it because I, I don't really know where to start. No, it's it's basically like you do have Jerusalem by night, which does give mm. some information. But yeah, this is. Because it is an area that is so steeped in history and especially also religion, it's it's you're never going to have you're never gonna have as much page count as you really want. So I think what this does is just give you a very, very basic overview. You're always going to have to do research yourself. Uh, and I really went down the rabbit hole with yeah. research. Uh, oh my god! Um, but I think that you know this this gives you enough information where you can say this area sounds cool, this NPC sounds interesting, this event or political uh, situation sounds like something I want to explore, and then you can use that to do your own information. Which I think that is the general 
gist of this book, the general idea of this book is basically to give that. The problem with this chapter is that it covers this region that just has thousands upon thousands of years yeah. of history, politics, religion, uh, everything. So it's 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 always going to be an area that's going to be difficult to cover. Also because you don't want to turn it into just a dry history textbook because not all gamers are going to like that i'm certainly going to like that but but it's not gonna yeah sell. and and it, it's already 190 pages so uh there, there are some things that it could uh cut out or at least reduce like we mentioned the the silent furies uh but but yeah, yeah it's it's still gonna be quite a lot of it uh but but yeah i, I think you're you sum it up quite well actually yeah so uh I think it's time to finally end this uh, this episode and judge this book. As I said in the beginning, this is one of my favorites, and after rereading it, I still love it. Sure, it has some historical misses, as we have uh, covered, especially when it comes to the Hanseatic mm -hmm. League. But in general, I think this is a great book as a game resource. It really helps you get ideas both for where to set a game and for plots. Historically, it is a bit thin, but of course, it covers a lot of ground. And with this in hand, you have a starting point for your own research so thumbs up for me yeah i'm i'm, I'm just gonna point out uh, a historical thing that that i forgot about when talking about uh scandinavia and, and the baltics uh and and that is they they mention uh the the kind of office of and i have no how, idea how to pronounce it a crive or krive or krive perhaps and and oh, it, yeah. it's it's supposed to be kind of like the the pagan um, pagan equivalent of a pope in uh, in the Baltics or Lithua Lithuania, that's that kind of Prussia, that kind of part. Um, and from what I can tell, it it was probably invented by a guy called uh, Simon Grunau in the six, 16th century, and he was uh, he wasn't the only, but he was one of of the many kind of like fake historians and and he wrote a book. I can't remember what it was called, but he basically wrote about the pagan people of uh, of Eastern Europe, and he kind of wanted to uh, show them off as kind of anti-Christians, like, yeah, we have our good and noble Pope, um, Simon Gruna was a Catholic, by the way, and, and those heathen, uh, heathen pagans, they have their their Krive, which is the kind of like the anti-Pope, and he's really, really bad, so... Um, like yeah, of course you you can throw it in if you want to, but just know that it's it's probably fake, um, but <laughs> or at least made up in a later uh, time period. But but yeah, I, I I agree with your assessment. There there are a lot of really good information, um, especially for for some parts of uh, of Europe. So um, if like if if you're going to set your your campaign in Scandinavia, then you might be a bit disappointed. Or if you want to include the uh, um, the Bulgars, uh, then then you're gonna need to do more research. But if you want to set it in in uh, France or Spain or even Italy, then then there's a lot of things to go by. So um, I we we've said it before, and I think it's it's. Um, I, I say it as a compliment and I hope that it's taken as a compliment and it's not uh, it's it's not that there are things that are wrong it's more that there are things that are missing or that I would like to have more of but in general mm. I agree that it, it also gets a thumbs up for me because 
the the things that actually are in the book, uh, unlike the island of Gotland, is is really well written and and uh, well researched. So uh, yeah, I appreciate that. So next time things are going to get interesting, as for the first time we move away from vampire and take a look at Dark Ages Mage. Uh, remember, if you want to support the channel, we have a Patreon, and if you have comments, suggestions, or critique, pop by our Facebook page. And with that, Peter, do you have any last comments before we uh, sign no, off? No, Podcast Doggo is poking me and wants to take a walk, so I am probably going to have to do that. That sounds yeah. like a good idea. And so, it is goodbye for me, Jacob. And for me, Peter. Well, I do want to say thanks to all our listeners and our patrons. You're awesome. Uh, but it's goodbye for me, Peter, as well. And farewell, and see you next time. Bye!